Um, this is the Shir on the Book of Yechezkel, Ilunishmos, Mephraim, Shmot, Ben Abramariah, Cohen, Chai, Tovabas, Eliezer, Mendelai, Cohen. On Yechezkel, we are in chapter 7, in verse 12. Uh, so now I'm recording it. Yeah, normally when Larry's there it says so, but I'm recording it for my machine here. Don't worry, it's being recorded. Um, okay. Last week we were dealing with the verse, uh, verse 12, uh, or oh, verse 11, I think. Uh, verse 11 or verse 12? Verse, yeah, verse 11. And in verse 11, uh, we've de- dealt with most of it. Uh, the only thing we've got to deal with is the first word. The the Novi, the Prophet Yechezkel saying, Hechomos kom lamata resha, the violence has arisen as a staff of wickedness. Lomehem velomehamonom velomehamehem. No no one will survive, not from them, not from their families, not from the people, not from the uh, population. Velo noah bohem. And uh, the reason is because nobody longs for me. Nobody longs for God. Um, we discussed that last week, exactly what the verse is referring to. There's two opinions, whether it's referring to the people of Yushalayim or uh, that no, almost no one will remain, or whether it's referring to the Babylonians, uh, whether the Babylonians, at the end of the day, they'll all be wiped out as well. Um, but the strange word in this verse is the word word right at the beginning of the verse, the word hechomos. And we discuss the fact that chomos uh, literally means um, theft. It's a particular type of theft, as we'll see. And um, uh, what's interesting is that word's introduced here. We know that uh, the first temple was destroyed because of uh, paganism, because of uh, immoral sexual activity, because of um, murder. But here we're being introduced to something else, um, this idea of chomos, this idea of theft. And I made the point last week that um, although the generation of the flood uh, also got themselves involved in, in paganism and in uh, immoral sexual practices and also in murder, nevertheless, the, what the Torah describes the destru- destruction of uh, the world on the basis of chomos, chomos. The world was full of chomos. The world was full of vi- violence. So it's incorrectly translated. It actually means theft, um, but a particular type of theft, as we'll see now. Uh, because we know the two normal words that we have in Hebrew for robbery or theft is geneva. Uh, geneva is surreptitious theft, theft that's done under the cloud, under the shadow of darkness, or uh, surreptitiously where the perpetrator doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to be recognized. And we've also got gazel. Gazel is brazen, brazen theft. Someone stops somebody in the street and just robs them. Anyone that's lived in New York for any period of time knows exactly what that's all about. So there's a third issue here, a third idea of theft, and that's what God won't tolerate. And uh, that's homos. So exactly what that is. Um, the Ben Yoda describes exactly what it is and why it, uh, it, it, so to speak, it is the last straw that always breaks the camel's back. It was the last straw that broke the camel's back 
When it came to the flood, it's the last straw that broke the camel's back when it came to the destruction of the first temple. So the Ben Yoyada says as follows, Nira Libisiata Dishmai appears to me with the help of heaven, Gazel, Shoba Pruta. If you steal something, if you're a Ganifer, you're a Gazlan, um, you're stealing something that's worth something, that's worth a Shoba Pruta, worth more than the value of, say, a shekel or a dollar. Chomos pochus mi Pruta. Chomos is theft that uh, is less than the value of a dollar. And the halacha is, Ach, uh, you must, the halacha regarding Chomos is that if you steal something that's worth more than, say, a Pruto, uh, then you chayev in Bastin. Then the Bastin can exact from you uh, justice and force you to repay and repay with kefel and uh, fine you and give, give you a, pr- a criminal record. Chomos, on the other hand, uh, there's no the Torah doesn't treat Chomos as, speci- as a specific crime in the sense that you can bring someone to base it. And says a Benish says the Ben Yoda here, Ach Kim Chihoyi must meet him Bokhomais Vachoza, Bokhomais Vachoza, Kama Paomim Bacha Achas, Ubiom Echod Nitzdafro Achamosim Zeb Zevanasushia Godo. The Ben Yoda is telling you here what was what life was like in Yushalayim. He says, he says, remembering that the, in, in Halacha, as I just mentioned, a person could not be brought to a basting for stealing something worse than, worth less than a pruta, say less than a dollar or less than a shekel. Um, so to use a modern day example, imagine somebody who's uh, got a market stall and is selling rice by the kilo. So in a kilo of rice, are, there are maybe 25,000 grains of rice. And the price of that kilo, say, is two dollars fifty, or, or you know, at ten shekels. If it's two dollars fifty, that's two hundred and fifty cents. So that each grain of rice is only worth one one hundredth of one cent. Um, and so that a pruta's worth of rice is a hundred grains. So if you steal a hundred grains of rice, so that's a crime. That's a biblical crime. That's a, a crime of Geneva. Uh, if you do it surreptitiously, and it's a crime of gazela, if you do it brazenly. Um, and halacha is that if he's, unless you steal 100 grains of rice, the victim can't take you to court and get redress. Um, what was going on in Yerushalayim is that there were gangs, there were gangs of people uh, who were walking past market stalls, people were selling rice, people were selling fruit, uh, people were selling produce, and they were grabbing handfuls of fruit and vegetable and rice. And they were very well trained, knowing full well that each time they went past the stall, um, they had the skill down to a fine art. And each time they grabbed um, stuff and ran off, they made sure they grabbed less than one prutas, or less than a dollar's worth of merchandise. So they couldn't be prosecuted. And says the Ben Yodel, marauding gangs, gangs doing this all day, every day with impunity, stealing small quantities continually, continually until they had incu- accumulated larger amounts that they could sell, which he says is a premeditated method of depriving others of their living without having to suffer the consequences of legal action. Um, now, as you can imagine... Uh, this led to other aspects of chomos that we mentioned, because uh, the other translation of the word chomos is violence. 
And if you've got gangs of people stealing, constantly stealing from other people, that's eventually going to lead to violence. Violence on behalf of the thieves, uh, re- resulting in violent repercussions uh, by the victims when they couldn't get legal redress. Um, so th- that's homos. Uh, it's, it's theft that leads to violence. Um, and the question that said to Ben Yoyori is, why is Hamas treated, treated so harshly? After all, at the time of the flood, and here in Yechezkel's time, in Yerushalayim, much more serious crimes were being uh, perpetrated, as we discussed. <coughs> so the Ben Yishchai says, the answer to that is this. He quotes the Gemara, is Ulazer, Omar Zokef Atmo Kamakel, Nitzdarf Wizer he says the sin of Chomos became a way of life. Unlike Avodah Zorah, paganism, and Gilead Royas, which is sexual immorality, and Shrikas Domin, which was, were murder, which were sporadically being perpetrated by individuals both at the time of the flood and in Yerushalayim, but surreptitious Chomos uh, became rampant. Everyone was out for what they could get, and gangs of people formed to steal from people just enough to avoid prosecution. Um, and says the Ben Yoda, that's an evil state of mind. It's as if to say, I or we can steal from you and there's not a thing you can do about it. it it's a way of life that is not sustainable in creating a civilized, law-abiding, violent-free society. Um, it's a mafia society uh, out of 1930s Chicago. And that's a society that God won't tolerate. God wouldn't tolerate it at the time of the flood, and he's not going to tolerate it now in his own city of Yerushalayim. Because this is the key, says the Ben Yoyoda. The people knew they could band together and beat the system, which is bad enough. But they were obviously unmoved by the fact that God could still punish them. Um, and this attitude is in essence a denial of God. Like, we've found a way around God's system. We know how to defeat God's system of, ju- of justice by committing homos. Uh, and when your only concern is to beat the system and be unconcerned with what God thinks, um, what justice God is capable of meeting out, um, and that was what was going on at the time of the flood, and that's what was going on in Yerushalayim, when that happens on both those occasions, on the occasions of the, in the occasion of the flood, and on the occasion of uh, what was going on in Yerushalayim, God showed them what he could do. And he removed both societies. So that's the opinion of the Ben Yoda. And he says that's the reason why the end of the verse finishes off the, with the words, Velo Noah Bohem. No one is interested. No one is longing. No one is relating to me. No one's relating to God. At least he's, the Ben Yoda finishes off. He says, at least a Ganav. And a Gazlan, a regular thief, appreciates uh, that they can be caught. And there might be a price to pay for their actions, from a basin or directly from God. People that commit homos are not worried about that at all. They think they're impervious to consequences. Which is why homos is moved to the top of the list, lists of complaints here. Uh, and at the time of the flood. I mean, that's the answer. But Timor Leho or it's homos. That's what God said. God said, the reason why I'm destroying them now, at this particular moment, is Chomos has become rampant. Uh, surreptitious 
theft that leads to a violent response that causes the breakdown of society. Because, uh, uh, as the Ben Yoda says, a society based on Chomos, God won't tolerate, because it's a denial of his authority. People think to themselves, you know, we've got the Torah, yeah, we understand how it works, but we found a, a loophole, and we can um, make use of that loop, loophole. Um, it's also not lost on Chazal that the word Noah in this verse sounds very similar to Noach. Now, this is pointed out by uh, the Zohar um, to make the comparison complete. Uh, Chazal say you're supposed to be, you're supposed to glean from the reference to the word Noah in this verse. You should make that it should make you aware that what was going on at the time of the flood, at the time of Noah, was also happening in Yehuda and Yerushalayim at this time. Both societies had a problem with, as I said, had a problem with paganism, they had a problem with illicit sexual activity, and they had a problem with murder. But uh, as we've pointed out many times, it wasn't rampant. Uh, the thing that was rampant was Chomos, and that was the eventual catalyst to each of those societies' destruction. Uh, both the generation of the flood and this generation that lived in Yerushalayim. Uh, later, Rishonim also point out uh, the coincidence that the word Russia and Russia are closely related as well. Uh, and, uh, of course, the word Chomos we know very well from the um, from the uh, our interminable uh, enemies or cousins that live in the Gaza Strip. So... That, that is the idea of Chomos. Chomos is a, is a type of theft, um, and it's the mindset more than the theft itself. It's the mindset that we can defeat God, we can defeat the Torah. We know better than the Torah, we've got a way of circumventing the rules of the Torah. God says, really? You've got a way of circumventing my, my Torah? I'll show you how that works. And so this generation of the flood and the generation that lived in Yerushalayim both had to go. Uh, and that's the way the... Um, um, that's that's the the um, that's the way the Ben Yoda understands it. Okay, let's move on to verse twelve. Yeah, if you yeah. The the people today are amateurs. The people who we deal with today in the land of Israel are amateurs. In comparison to what was going on in Yerushalayim before the destruction of the first temple. Amateurs. And if you think our, our politicians were are corrupt today, they're amateurs compared to what was going on in Yerushalayim. The last few kings, the last few years of the first temple, and the last few years of the second temple period you're dealing with uh, evil people beyond the scope of your imagination. Manasseh, King Manasseh, who was one of the final kings of, uh, he was the son of one of the greatest men in world in Jewish history, Chizkiyahu. Manasseh, King Manasseh was an out-and-out murderer. He killed his own grandfather. His grandfather was Yeshayahu, Isaiah the prophet. He killed him. He killed, he killed his wife. He killed his children. He, he was a. He was a. He, he, what was going on in Yerushalayim can't possibly be described in the context of today's today's Israeli society. 
it, it was it was law, complete. It was Las Vegas. It was Las Vegas in the early years. If any, anybody's read any books about Las Vegas in the early years, or even Johannesburg in the early years, uh, when it was just a tent city and uh, violence was just uh, a way of life. And sorry, yeah. So apathy is uh, ap- apathy is terrible, but. Uh, what was going on in Yerushalayim wasn't apathy. I mean, everybody was out for what they could get. I mean, we, we can't... We, as I said, the only really parallel you can think about is uh, if you think about Las Vegas in the early years, um, if you think about the east end of London in the... Uh, or you think about Chicago in the 1930s, um, that's what Yerushalayim was like. No one was safe. No one was safe... No one was safe from the government. No one was safe from the courts. No one was safe in the street. That's how bad. That's how bad Yerushalayim was. Eicha Yoshvav Adot Ha'ira Bosiyam. Just read Eicha. Yirmiyor will tell you what what uh, Yerushalayim was like. And it's hard for us to imagine that uh, uh, the holy city of Yerushalayim was, um, you know, Las Vegas, was Chicago, was. Uh, you know, was um, an outlaw city, but it was. It's exactly what it was like. Hard to imagine, but uh, the truth, nevertheless. And certainly, the um, the kings, the final, most of the final kings of of Yehuda, uh, were out and out murderers, out and out thieves, corrupt murderers, uh, adulterers, uh, pagans. I mean, the list is endless. There's not almost almost nothing good to say about them. But what the point the point the Posik is making here is the final straw that broke the camel's back is the breakdown of society, the theft. Okay, now we move on to verse twelve. And again, Boha um, The time has come. The day has arrived, which is uh, Yecheskel's byline in this chapter. Like there's no time left. Like it's uh, it's right on top of you. The destruction's right on top of you. Hakona al Yismach, the buyer should not rejoice. Vahamocha al Yisabel, and neither should the seller mourn. Kichoron el Kol Hamona, for there will be fury and anger upon the whole population. Now, exactly what this means, so this is uh, this is quite straightforward. Um, the Hakono al Yismoch Vahamocha al Yisabel. The buyer shouldn't rejoice, and neither should the seller mourn. What does that mean? So it means like this. Uh, it's a reference. This reference is not to buying or selling merchandise, because when it comes to buying and selling merchandise, it's the seller who rejoices because he's made a profit, and it's the buyer that mourns because he has, has to pay a, uh, a price. Because he's desperate for the goods, so he has to pay as high a price as the uh, the seller wants for what he desperately needs. So that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about the buying and selling of one's inherited family land in Israel. Now, when the when the Jews came into the land of Israel uh, under Yoshua, so for seven years they were at war, and for seven years the land was divided. It took fourteen years for the land to be completely divided amongst the tribes. And everybody, every tribe got their own piece of land. Um, and every family within that tribe got their own piece of land. Uh, and their land 
was called their chaylek or their nachala. Chaylek means a share or nachala means their inheritance. And that share, that, that family homestead, so to speak, it was inherited family land, um, was a heritage rather than an inheritance. So there was a big difference between a heritage and an inheritance. The Torah we described as a uh, Torah Tzivalonu Moshe, Morosho Kihilat Yaakov. It's a Morosho. It's not a Yerusha. The Torah is not a Yerusha. It's a Morosho. And the difference between a Yerusha, an inheritance, and a Morosho, a heritage, is this. If you inherit some money, so you can do with it what you want. You can give it away, you can sell it, you can keep it, you can do what you like with it. It's yours. A Morosho, an, an heritage, is something that you're allowed to use during the time that you're alive. But then you're required to pass it on to the next generation, which is what the Torah is. The Torah is there for you to pass it on to the next generation. And one of the questions you'll be asked in Meva Esrim Shona is, Vishinantam Lovanecha. Did you teach your children? Did you pass it on to the next generation? In England, this is very, very much part of uh, the, gen- gen- the gen- gentry system or the feudal system, as it was once known, in that you have today, you have Lord this and Lord that, and they've done nothing to uh, uh, warrant uh, the uh, magnificent stately homes that they inherit or seem to inherit. They actually don't inherit them. They inherit them for the period that they're alive, but they're required to pass them on to the next generation. So in the land of Israel, uh, when the land was split up uh, among these families and, and these groups of families, so each each family had their own chalek, had their own uh, piece, uh, had their own nachla, had their own, um, so to speak, section, uh, which was inherited family land, um, uh, um, and the only time that you're allowed to sell the land is when you are absolutely destitute. Uh, and, because, and because they recognized that this was a family uh, plot, nobody wanted to give up the land that had been in their family since the time of Yoshua. I've been in the land since the time of Yoshua. You're talking now 850 years. So under those circumstances, when the owner of family land in Israel is forced to sell his chalek, his nachala, his uh, heritage, it's he, the seller, that mourns. The, that's what the Posik says. Uh, the owner won't mourn. But uh, generally speaking, the owner, the seller does mourn. Um, because the only reason why he would ever sell his chalek or nachala uh, is um, it's his most prized possession. And he'd only do it if he, um, he was absolutely destitute and couldn't do anything about it. But even that, we know the halacha is that the land returns um, to the family unit at the time of the oval, as we'll discuss in a second. On the other hand, the person that buys the property, so he's very happy um, because he's increased his stakeholding in the Holy Land. So the way it works is this, the way the land uh, operates in the land of Israel, the way uh, it works is when when each family inherits a, or uh, it was granted a piece of land as a chalek or a nachalot by Yehoshua, um, um, all that land, uh, as I mentioned, 
can only be sold at a state in a state of ex- extreme destitution. You can only sell it if you're absolutely destitute and you, you haven't got food to put on the table. But even at that point, even though you've sold it, it's only sold till the Yovel year, till the 50th of the Jubilee year, at which time it automatically returns to the possession of its original owner or uh, and its heirs. That's a Sukkim in Vayikra, at the end of Vayikra, chapter 25. Uh, so that because of that, when a person sells his ancestral field, he normally intends to sell only the payrus. Really, you're only selling the produce of that land. You're not actually selling the freehold. You're really only selling the leasehold uh, until the Yovel year, and not the land itself. Uh, and that's the way the Gomorrah Gittin understands it. Um, but what happens is this. If somebody becomes destitute and they have to sell their ancestral land in Israel, um, beginning two years after the sale, the original owner has got the right to redeem the field from the person who purchased it. Um, He does so by returning the proportion of the money that was paid for the remaining years until the Yovel, and the buyer is forced to accept the redemption money and return the field. But here, God is telling the people that the whole system is going to fall apart. In other words... Normally, what the, uh, the, the words of the Posuk are, um, the words of the Posuk are, Hakona al Yismach, the buyer of this land, he should be very happy because he increases holding in the land of Israel. But at this point in history, Hakona al Yismach, the buyer of the land, won't, won't get any joy from that. The Hamocha al Yisabel, and the seller, who's somebody that would normally be destitute and would be happy, uh, would be de- desperately sad to have to sell his land, al Yisabel, he won't have to mourn the selling of his land. And the reason is this. Um, says, this is God's uh, statement, so to speak. Um, God is telling the people that the whole system is about to fall apart. And this is the way it's going to fall apart. This is the Barabanel. L'chein hakona shama. Somebody who buys a piece of land from somebody else in the land of Israel, Al Yismach, don't be so happy. Kilo because he won't stay in your possession. Vahamocha Al Yisabel, and the seller, don't be too too disheartened. Uh, being upset about the fact that you've lost control over your. Don't be so distraught because you're were forced into circumstances where you had to sell your family prot. Why? Because the continuation of the apostle, because the anger, the fury of God will be on both both sides. A, a plague on both your houses. A plague on the house of the seller and a plague on the house of the buyer. What does that mean? God's anger and fury will be taken out over the whole of Yehuda. The whole area of the of, uh, of Yehuda and Jerusalem, below Yisha sod of below Bayis, there won't be any fields that will be owned by Jews. Becherem, and there won't be any vineyards that will be owned by Jews. Below Bayis, and there'll be no houses uh, that will be owned by Jews. La Adam no one will have any property. Ve'omer. And the Omazer, and this is what Yechezkel saying, normally, somebody that's in, de- in terrible state of destitution, 
um, and he has to sell the field, will be very upset. Yisasev will be very upset. And the person that gets to buy it will be overjoyed. And everybody understands the rule that in the Jubilee year, all property returns to their original owners that were written into the book when Yehoshua divided up the land. That isn't going to happen with this exile. Kichoron al Kolhamona. Those days are over. That uh, the Yovel, remember they're going into exile, um, as we're going to see in a second, they're going into exile for 70 years. So there's going to be at least one Yovel period. In fact, the Yovel, we know the Yovel um, period started very early on in the um, in the exile. And um, as a result of that, um, they won't be in Israel to get their land back because the land will already have been confiscated uh, by the Babylonians. So the whole system by which a person selling his land because of destitution can, or knows that at the end of the day he's sad that he had to sell it, but he's going to get it back in the overall, so that's not going to happen. And the person that buys it, who's normally happy, so he's just going to be paying out the money, and uh, before he knows it, the Babylonians are going to come along and confiscate it from him. And uh, as verse 13 continues to tell the story about how the land is going to be taken away from their original owners. Verse 13, For the seller will not return to that which was sold uh, while they are still alive. For when the prophecy was directed to the whole nation, Lo Yoshev, the Jewish people didn't repent. And each man's lifestyle represented his own iniquity, represented his own sin, and they did not strengthen themselves against sin. So this is the explanation of the previous verse. So exactly what this verse means, this is the way you, to understand it. He says, the prophet Yechezkel says, Yechezkel here underscores the message of the previous verse in brief. After the destruction of Yehuda, after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the destruction of the base of Migdash and the Jews going to exile, no one is ever going to see or own their land again. Not the original owner, nor any new buyer. By the time the exile is over, you would all have either died in the siege, died in the invasion, or died in exile. And even if some of you survive the exile and do return, since the exile lasted 70 years, the idea of reclaiming your property in the oval year would be moot. Because if you don't reclaim your property in the oval year, that's it. You don't get another chance to do so, as the, uh, as the Radak explains. The general rule in Israel was that in the Oval year all land returned to their original owners from the time of Yeshua Binun, the family plot. God says, My anger is extended against them. Api. Api means action. God's action. 
These people that own the land, either the old owners or the new owners, whoever it was that was in control of this land. Uh, they won't, uh, the land could, can't possibly return to them in the Yovel. Because of the time of the Yovel, they'll be in Golas. So the land, uh, that, that system, that's, that system of what we call Steachusa, um, the property that uh, is part of your inheritance, part of, not really inheritance, part of your heritage, part of your chelek, part of your nachala, uh, your family's plot in the land of Israel, that period of, of uh, Judaism is about to end. And um, as we'll see, um, when they came back to the land of Israel, so few came back anyway, um, but even later, when the population increased, that system was never re- reintroduced. Um, and uh, what's interesting is the Possek says, Bechayim Chayoso. Uh, it's a double expression. And the, the Malbim says, there's a reason why the Possek says, if you, if you look at the Possek itself, it says, Ki Amocha Lo Yoshev. The seller will not return that which was sold, as long as as long as they are alive. And the uh, the Malman wants to know why why he uses the language b'chayim chayosa, a double expression. So he says like this: He says, Those Jews that sold their land and managed to escape into exile survived, but they never recovered their land. As we said before, they either died in exile or came back came back uh, to the land of Israel too late to claim their land via a yovel. And he teaches, gives you a history lesson, lesson here. He said, and even some of the few who sold their land and remained in Israel survived. But they were put, put to work tending the fields and vineyards for the profit of the Babylonian treasury by Nevuzradan. Now, Nevuzradan was the guy that murdered all the Jews in Yehuda. He's the guy that's responsible for the death of nearly 950,000 Jews. And uh, surprise, surprise, uh, he later converted to Judaism, which is not worth, what is worth, but we, we haven't got time to explain what, why that happened. But that's a Gomorrah in Sanhedrin. But Nebuz Radan, he was the commander of Nebuchadnezzar's army, and... Um, he was in charge of the destruction of Yehuda, of Yerushalayim, and the base of Migdosh, and the deportation of the people of Yehuda. Uh, and then he became the Babylonian governor of Yehuda. So what he did was, anybody that was left in the land of Israel, he put them to work. So you, had, you, 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 owned a, you owned a piece of land, so it was confiscated by the Babylonian government. Uh, and you ended up working for the Babylonians, working on your own land uh, to the profit of the Babylonians as a slave. But the people who still owned land when the Babylonians arrived and all the wealthy businessmen were immediately executed and the property surrendered to the Babylonian coffers. So uh, it was better that you'd sold your land. You're in a better position if you had sold your land and you were, you know, um, uh, you weren't a landowner because what Nevuz Radan did is all the owners of property and businesses, so it's like, because think about Zimbabwe, think about uh, Robert Mugabe. So when he came to power, so anybody that owned a property, anyone that owned a farm, anyone that owned land, uh, 
white people particularly, uh, all their property and everything was surrendered to the crown. And uh, people that were powerful, uh, big businessmen or big landowners, so they all ended up disappearing. So that's what happened in Yerushalayim as well. So that's why it uses the language that... Um, the double language in the verse, Bahaim Chayoso. Uh, if they've managed to survive, this was going to be their life. The life that they're going to lead is uh, they're still not going to be in control of their property. They're going to end up working uh, for the Babylonian government as slaves, working on their own property, but they're never going to be, ever be able to uh, recover it. Either they'll eventually die or they, they obviously, they miss the yovel. Um the only real question that's left to answer in this verse, I think, is um, what was the state of the Yovel? Now, we know the Yovel is a, is a Torah institution. Um, and um, one of the rules of the Yovel is that the Yovel only stays in operation as long as there are 12 tribes in the land of Israel. That's one of the rules of the Yovel. That's why we can't have a Yovel today, because uh, we've only got uh, two and a half tribes or members of two and a half tribes. We've got the tribe of, um, well, about 93% of the population uh, of the Jewish people throughout the world come from two tribes, Yehuda and Binyamin. The other 7% are from, or the other 6 or 6% are from um, the tribe of Levi, Kohanim and Levim. And um, uh, interspersed among us are uh, people who've, whose yichus goes back to the other ten tribes. But uh, generally speaking, uh, the other ten tribes are completely lost. So one of the questions that's asked here, you know, the Yecheskel is talking about the fact that, uh, you know, uh, land and land in the land of Israel and selling it and reclaiming it during Yovel. Um, the question uh, lot, uh, people ask is, you know, the t- ten tribes were exiled some years before, and quite a long time before, about 135 years before this. Uh, so how could it be that the Yovel was still in operation anyway at the time of the destruction of the first base of Migdosh? After all, the southern kingdom only, only, only consisted of two and a half tribes, or, or three tribes, or really two and a half tribes. The tribe of Yehuda, the tribe of Binyamin, and uh, just over half the tribe of, uh, of Levi, the Kohanim and the Levian. So how could there have been a Yovel anyway? Because you need uh, all 12 tribes to, uh, and according to most authorities, not only do you need all 12 tribes to have a Yovel, you need the 12 tribes to be living in their Nachalot, to be living in their, their specified areas, their federal areas, in the, the land, in the lands that they were given at the time of Yahshua, which certainly wasn't the case. So in any case, it seems a bit moot to describe, for Yechezkel to describe the fact that, you know, you're going to be in exile for 70 years and you're going to miss out on the over when you're going to, which would have been a point where you could have reclaimed the land you sold or reclaimed the land, uh, your Steachuza. So how come there was a Yovel even uh, at this particular time, which we mentioned before in the first chapter? Um, that uh, there was a Yovel coming up. So the Gemara in Erechin on Daflamid Gimel explains exactly what's going on here. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan says over there um, that uh, the Yovel year was not in effect once the tribes of Reuven, Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh were exiled. If you remember, the, the, uh, the, 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 um, there were two and a half tribes that chose to live on the other side, on the east, on the, um, on the eastern bank of the Jordan. That was the tribe of Reuven Gad, 
they are the ones that uh, initiated um, the idea of living on the other side of the Jordan River. And Moshe Rabbeinu insisted that half the tribe of Manasseh join them. So you had two and a half tribes that lived there. And at that point, um, when they were exiled, uh, they were the first uh, of the tribes to be exiled by the Assyrians, uh, first of the ten tribes to be exiled by the Assyrians. So automatically the Yovel count stopped. Um, but uh, as the Gemara says, but Yirmiyahu, who is uh, a contemporary, which we mentioned last week, is a contemporary, was a contemporary of Yechezkel, brought back members of all the exiled tribes. Um, and uh, King Yoshiyahu uh, ben Amon, who is the king, who was one of the final kings uh, at the time of uh, leading up to uh, the this destruct one of the final kings. He's the last righteous king. Um, he lived at the time of Tsefania, who was the uh, teacher of Yirmiyahu. And um, he was the king. And Yirmiyahu brought back members of each of the other ten tribes. Um, so the Gemara says, well, why do we know that uh, Yirmiyahu brought them back? So it's, he says it's written here. This is the source of it. It says, The seller will not return that which he has sold. It will not return to that which he has sold, which is indicative of the fact that they won't be able to claim their land back during the over. Um, and the, the Gomorrah says, Yechezkel prophesied that there'll come a time when the fields will not be returned to the owners in the Ovel. Um, so it's obvious uh, that the, at the time that Yechezkel is speaking, that the Ovel was still in operation. And the reason for that is that Yirmiyahu brought back uh, certain mem- members of each of the ten tribes uh, who had gone into exile. He went looking for them and he managed to bring back members of all the exiled tribes. Um, and they lived in the land of Israel right up to the time of the destruction of the first base of Migdosh, which is why even today uh, there are remnants, um, some people, we don't know who they are, but uh, some remnants of the Jewish people whose lineage goes back to members of the ten tribes, lost tribes. We just don't know who they are. That's why I said about 92-93% of the Jewish population in the world today are from either, or 99% of the population of the Jewish world today are either got direct descent from the tribe of Yehuda, Binyamin, or Levi, and the other 1% are an assortment that's traced back their lineage to one of the ten tribes. We don't know who's who in the zoo. Um... We don't even know who the Kohanim are, to be perfectly frank. Uh, we only uh, judge uh, uh, the Kohanim based on Masora. If somebody's got a Masora in their family, that they're a Kohen, so we treat them like a Kohen. But uh, the reality is that, uh, I mean, there are people with a Sefer Yuchsin. Uh, if anyone knows Rabbi Tuvi Singer, so Rabbi Tuvi Singer's got a Sefer Yuchsin going back 127 generations uh, to show that he's a Kohen. He, traces, he can trace his lineage back 127 uh, generations, right back to Aaron HaKohen. Uh, so he says. Anyway, no, he does. He has. I've seen the book. And so, but uh, even the Kohen, even you, Ben, we don't know for sure. The only reason we know that you're definitely a Kohen is because of your wonderful singing voice, right? The Kohen have got wonderful singing voice. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's yeah, but uh, the genetic test might indicate you have the Kohanic uh, uh, gene marker, but it doesn't indicate that you're Jewish. 
because you might have the the gene the the Kohanic gene marker from your great grandfather, but your great grandmother might not have been Jewish. So we don't know if <laughs> you with me. So yeah, so you might you might have Kohanic blood in you that you might not even be Jewish. Never mind being a Kohen. Yeah, so we don't know. So um, and that's why uh, in, in certain respects we're very makeable with Kohanim. Uh, just to just to put a lid on the Kohanim thing when we. When Kohanim duchens, uh, if one Kohen duchens, one Kohen duchens, it's Durabonon. If more than one Kohen duchens, it's, it's Deoraisa. But uh, there's a big question mark whether it's really Deoraisa or not, because we're not absolutely sure that uh, there's an old joke about the Kohen. He wanted to be a Kohen, and uh, he paid a lot of money, and he said that he's, he made a big dinner to announce that he was a Kohen, and he said, you know... I'm so delighted that I'm now a Cohen. He says, my father was a Cohen and my grandfather was a Cohen. And now I'm delighted that I'm a Cohen as well. Anyway, but uh, there is um, no disrespect, but uh, the yichus of every, every Jew is, is, is in question. And what's interesting is that um, uh, people think, you know, when the Mashiach comes, Eliyoh Novi, the last line of the Tanakh, um, on that great day uh, that Eliyahu Novi will precede the Mashiach, so everyone thinks, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's going to be telling everybody's secrets. And the answer is no, he's not. He's not even going to tell um, people that, um, you know, if they're Jewish, they're not Jewish, whether they're Mamza, they're not Mamza, whether they're Tome, whether they're Tohar. All he's going to do is tell you which tribe you're from. And that's how you'll know which tribe you're from. So anyway, back to Yecheskel. So in this verse, it says quite clearly, Ki chozon el kol hamon lo yoshev. Uh, and uh, that, uh, one, of the, one of the punishments, the uh, ensuing punishments of the exile, is that the breakup, the breakup of this feudal system, this land system, where land was in the family of Jewish uh, Jewish families for generation after generation, 850 years. But uh, that's all going to end. That's going to be a byproduct of the destruction of Yerushalayim and the exile that comes from it. Ki chozon al kol hamon yoshev, says the prophet. Yechezkel says, despite the multitude of prophets, uh, over 500 plus years, desperately warning and cajoling the people to do teshuva, it never happened. Why? And this is the key what the key words in this verse. The ish ba'avono chayoso lo yischazoku. And what this means is sometimes people do things because uh, they're, they're, they're the necessities of life. See, you have things you've got to do in life that you, you might not like doing, but you've got to do that. You've got to work. If you don't, if you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, you've got to take care of your children, however difficult that may be, when they're being uh, irritating and noisy. And you've still got to look after them. You've got to look after your parents. You've got to... Those things, you've got responsibilities in life. There are imperatives in life that a person has to do to, per- to perpetuate his life, to perpetuate his relationship with his children, with his wife, with his, with his parents, uh, to create a life for himself, to create some sort of... Uh, simcha in his life and uh, these are the necessities of life as the jungle book says the bare necessities of life will come to you there's, you, there's things you've got to do and um, 
in life. There's just no way around them. On the other hand, there are other things that are not necessities. Uh, but a person do, enjoys doing them anyway. Going to the game is not a necessity. Watching a film is not a necessity. Buying, uh, you know, expensive jewellery is not a necessity. Um, things that a person identifies with as a good reason to live. That's the opposite of to perpetuate life as the reason why you're doing it. So there's, a, there's, a thing, there's things you do in life, things, responsibilities you got in life that you can't get out of. But uh, working, for example, it gives you the possibility to do things that uh, give you a good, good feeling in life. The things we live for, the things we live to do. So you've got two, two things in, in, in life. The things that you have to do, that, uh, you know, sometimes we feel oppressed by it. We've got to go to work. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. We've got to do the other. We've got to take the kids to the, to the play. We've got to take the kids to the park. We, there's loads of there's things in life that we have to do. It's just, but there's other things in life that we live for. The things that we live to do. And um, the point Yecheskel is making here is the sins of the Jews of Yehuda were in the second category. They loved the lifestyle. It's not as if, you know, they were forced into it. You know, uh, oh God, well, we've got to go to the, the Hindu temple today. Oh, we've got to go to the orgy tonight. Oh, you know, have we got to, you know, go out stealing tomorrow. That wasn't their attitude. They loved it. They loved the lifestyle. They loved the pagan lifestyle. They loved the sexual immorality. It's, that's what they lived for. Just like, you know, we live to, you know, we work all day and then we can sit down, settle down at night and watch a, you know, a good game of football or watch a, a, a good documentary or go out with your wife and have a wonderful meal. No, that's what we live for. We work all day so that we can have those opportunities to enjoy uh, the things that, uh, the nice things in life. But the Jewish people in Yerushalayim, they didn't treat Avodah Zorah and Gilead Royas, they didn't treat paganism and, uh, and sexual immorality as something they had to do because, you know, in order to make a living or in order to keep body and soul together. No! That's what they live for. And that's what Yechezkel is saying here. Ish ba'avono chayoso. That their sinful lifestyle was their life. They loved it. And that's why they never did teshuva. And that's why he says, Lo yischazoku. They didn't challenge themselves to change. They didn't give themselves chizuk to change. They didn't want to change. Why should they? Why would they? They embraced the lifestyle, Rashi says. Lo yischazoku libom al yitzro. Lo They had no intention to strengthen their heart and fight their Evil, inclina- evil inclination, the Yetzirah, and return to the Torah. They were in love with their Yetzirah. Whatever the Yetzirah suggested that they do, go to the orgy. Oh, yes, please. Let's all go down and have a, you know, have a, a, a wild time at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the Buddha. Yes, please. They loved it. And that's what he says. Ishba avonu chayosa. At the end of the day, that's that's the type. And this goes back to what Willie was asking. What type of society were... They were hedonists. They were hedonists. They lived for, they lived for themselves. They lived for, the, for, for their own bodies, their own goof. It was Gashmius all the way. 
They didn't believe for one moment that the Avodah was real. Don't be mistaken into believing that. They knew it was all nonsense. But the lifestyle was wonderful. The lifestyle was fantastic. They were in love with it. And they were in love with their Yetzirah, which is the reason why they never did Teshuvah. And, um, and just, just think about God's patience. Because, you know, God let this go for, for over 500 years. This was going downhill, uh, not rapidly, but it was going downhill. Uh, there was a couple of ups, but it was mainly downhill um, from the time of uh, Rehovah, from the time of, the, of Shlomo HaMelech's, um, Shlomo HaMelech's um, son, when Shlomo HaMelech's son took over the uh, kingdom of Israel. Um, pretty much from that time, during his reign, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split. And pretty much from that time, the northern kingdom had no righteous kings, not one. They were all, you know, they were all murderers. They were all thieves. The, the way you got to be the king in the northern kingdom, uh, very few very few of the northern kingdom kings inherited the throne. Uh, most of them gained the throne by uh, overthrowing the uh, and murdering the pr- previous king. It was, again, it was, the northern kingdom was just, uh, you know, lawless. And the southern kingdom, at the end of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom went downhill very, very quickly as well. So they were in love with it. And that's, I think that's one of the key verses that describes the destruction of the first base of Middash. Ish ba'avono chayoso. They loved it. They loved the lifestyle. And when you love the lifestyle, when you're in love with your lifestyle, um, there's almost no chance that you're going to change it, no matter what anybody says to you. Who's going to give it up? Who's going to give up that, that lifestyle? And uh, that's the point that, uh, that, that, a really, really powerful point that Yechezkel is making here. Okay, I'm just going to, men- I'm going to mention verse uh, 14, uh, but we'll deal with verse 14 in in. In, in detail next week. Tiku batokoa vohochin hakol. Sound the shofar and uh, double expression. Sounding the shofar is a sign of, uh, uh, it's either a sign it's Rosh Hashanah or uh, more likely in Yushalayim, it's a sign that the enemy are coming. That's what they used to do when they, they what the lookouts could see the enemy coming, they used to blow the shofar to warn everybody to mobilize. So the, the Novi Yechezkel says, Toku uh, Batakoa, sound the shofar, sound the alarm that the enemy are coming. Vahochin hakol, and prepare everybody. The ain holech la milchama, no one's going to go out and fight. Kicharoni al kolhamona, because God's anger is upon the whole nation. And uh, we'll see what that means. That uh, what actually happened was, they all they mobilized for a battle, and uh, then I don't know if you got that expression in in America, but Harvey will remember it. Cowardly, cowardly custard. Remember that expression? Anybody in South Africans know that expression? Cowardly, cowardly custard. Philip Fine, do you remember that expression? It means that uh, you know you're all you're all uh, all mouth. Yes, correct. You're all big mouth when uh, you, you know you talk about it, but when it comes down to fighting, there's a large yellow streak 
going down your back and your front. And uh, when the enemy comes, you run for your life. Uh, all the all the brave souls in Yerushalayim, he says, you know, Yechezka almost uh, sarcastically, you know, Toku Butakoa, yeah, you'll all sound the alarm and you'll all look very, very, uh, you know, macho. Vahokinakol, and you'll get all the weaponry ready, but vahin holetl milchomar, you'll be too frightened to go to war. Kicharoni el kolhamonik. God's going to make sure that you have cold feet. So that is that is the verse we're going to deal with next week, and um, a lot of good stuff to good stuff to come in this verse, and uh, as we move deeper in the chapter. Um, if anybody's got uh, a question, uh, now's the time. Um, if not, 